Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. It was the morning of May 3rd, 1975. Upon returning from a routine flight from Zahuatanejo to Mexico City, 23-year-old pilot Carlos de Santos prepared his Piper PA-24 plane, and it was soon in the skies, heading for the Benito Juarez International Airport. It was over the VHF omnidirectional radio range when Carlos noticed something odd in the distance. As he approached the oddity on his left, it soon came into view. There in the skies was a craft, gray in color and saucer-shaped. It was much smaller than his plane as it began to follow his left wing. It had what appeared to be a cockpit of some sort on the top with a blackened-out window. As Carlos stared in awe at the craft, he had a strange feeling that he was being watched from the other side of his plane. He turned to look, and on his right wing was yet another identical craft. Carlos now felt uneasy, but before he could even process what was happening, a third craft appeared directly in front of his plane, descending beneath the front. Reacting on impulse, Carlos dipped the nose of the plane to observe where this craft had gone. To his surprise and dismay, the craft was a little too close for comfort, hitting and scraping the fuselage, damaging the landing gear of the plane. It was at this point that Carlos no longer felt in control of his Piper plane. No matter what he did to try to get a handle of the plane, nothing was working. Surrounded by the three unknown objects, he was sure that they were moving in to attack. Surprisingly, however, Carlos felt as though they were guiding him. He still felt threatened and attempted to bump the object to his right, hoping this would somehow stop their control over his plane. But it didn't. They were still in complete control and now forcing the Piper plane to ascend to dangerous altitudes. Helpless and afraid of the rapid increase in cabin pressure literally killing him, Carlos did the only thing he could do. He radioed for help. Connecting with a control tower in Mexico City, he sent a distress call, yelling Mayday as loud and as frequent as he possibly could. He went on to describe what was happening, stating that, quote, I have three unidentified visual objects flying around me, end quote. 
He then went on to explain that, quote, I'm apparently flying without control. The plane is without control. I'm not controlling the plane, end quote. The control tower instructed him to decelerate and descend, but Carlos explained that he couldn't. He believed this was the end, but just as he lost all hope, the objects seemed to distance themselves and begin to head toward the nearby Mount Popo Catipeto volcano at unbelievable speeds. The objects soon disappeared out of sight, and Carlos regained control of his aircraft. He notified the control tower of such, but the issue remained that his landing gear was damaged beyond control. The airport issued an emergency landing, clearing the area of all flights. Forced to circle the airport almost a dozen times, Carlos desperately searched for something to fix the landing gear. He was able to find a screwdriver, and in a makeshift process, was successful in extending the gear and safely landing the plane. Carlos was treated at a local clinic, and no substances were found in his system. He was given a clear bill of health and permission to continue flying thereafter. Any doubt that the event occurred were squashed when the radar operators at the control tower that day testified that they did indeed view the objects in real time as they were making the maneuvers that Carlos had been reporting. According to UFO researcher Miguel Romero, an affidavit was recorded in official minutes of the General Directorate of Civil Aeronautics by the Officer of Aeronautical Authority for the International Airport of Mexico City. The case caught international attention, and soon news outlets wanted to speak to Carlos about what had happened. The case was also investigated by Project Blue Book under the guidance of Dr. J. Allen Hynek. The government hired astronomer who officially looked at UFO cases. On several occasions, Carlos was visited by what can only be described as men in black. He was told not to speak of what had happened or he and his family could suffer consequences. But he was adamant about getting his story out to the public and even until this day continues to speak out about it. Carlos went on to continue flying, having a healthy and safe career thereafter. But presumably that almost fateful day in 1975 completely changed his outlook on what lay somewhere in the skies over Mexico and just exactly how much control the trio of saucer-shaped craft seemed to have over his Piper plane. Throughout the history of modern UFO research, there have been many reports of crashed flying saucers and dead alien bodies being shipped off to destinations unknown. And while many of these reports come from dubious and less than credible witnesses, there are those rare occasions when the story rests on the shoulders of extremely prominent and highly credible individuals. Such was the case for Clark B. McClelland, former spacecraft operator of the NASA space shuttle fleet. McClelland came forward to tell a fantastic story he'd heard from the late Lieutenant Colonel Ellison Onizuka, former Discovery astronaut who tragically died in the 1986 Challenger space shuttle explosion. During a routine prep mission, the two had connected and exchanged several conversations throughout their working relationship. Many astronauts had been aware that McClelland had an interest in UFOs, having spoken on many occasions 
with Major Donald Kehoe and Dick Hall, two former members of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. During one of McClellan's correspondence with Onizuka, he was quite surprised when Onizuka asked him about his opinions on the possibility of an extraterrestrial intelligence having visited the planet. McClellan once stated that he told Onizuka that he believed that life does exist among the stars and that it has visited Earth throughout human history. At this point, Onizuka smiled and then pressed on. He asked McClelland if his name had any type of connection to McClelland Air Force Base in California. When he admitted that he wasn't aware of any connection, he asked Onizuka why he was so curious. McClelland recalled the following about Onizuka's response. Quote, he had a surprising experience along with other USAF aerospace flight engineers and pilots while on military training duty at McClellan Air Force Base about eight or nine years prior to his astronaut training. He and his group were at the base for specialized training when they were directed to report to a viewing room. As they were seated, the room darkened and a movie began without the usual official introduction by a USAF officer, end quote. At this point, Onizuka remembered being startled when the film began to show what appeared to be some sort of medical examination room with small bodies laying on some sort of table. The bodies, according to Onizuka, were, quote, small, strange-looking creatures. They were humanoid and appeared similar to those described by alleged witnesses at the well-known Roswell site. In 1947, they all had large heads, large eyes, slight torsos, arms, and legs. They did not appear to be of earthly origin. But why were Onizuka and others shown this film? To what purpose was it to usher them in, sit them down, and not explain what they were seeing? Onizuka explained his theories on this to McClelland, stating that, quote, We were all caught off guard. Perhaps it was a test of our psyche to determine our overall reaction. Well, we were all caught by surprise. End quote. This certainly would have been enough reason to question what it was they were seeing. So had they been given the opportunity to inquire? Onizuka went on to explain that they were not even given a moment to question their superiors. He would go on to say that, quote, We were then asked to exit the room and continued our scheduled technical activities, as if nothing special had occurred, end quote. So this had clearly been a cryptic and bizarre experience, prompted by Onizuka's superiors and various agencies. So while it may have been a test on the collective and individual psyche of the viewers at the time, what was the overall intent and the opinion of Onizuka? He postulated the following to McClelland. Quote, perhaps it was a planned USAF psychological test for military reasons. NASA may have been evaluating it in my selection as an astronaut in 1978. You know, what would my reaction be if I actually saw an alien being? End quote. It was at this point that McClellan claims that the two went their separate ways, but not before agreeing to meet again to discuss the extraordinary story in more detail. McClelland wished Onizuka the best of luck in his upcoming Challenger spaceflight mission. Unbeknownst to both men that day, it would be the last time they ever spoke. On January 8, 1986, Onizuka and the other members of the Challenger crew lost their lives in the tragic accident that shook the nation. 
McClelland was at Kennedy Space Center that day when the Challenger exploded and fell into the Atlantic Ocean. With it, the incredible accomplishments of the crew lived on in the memories of many. And for Onizuka in particular, he was remembered by most for being the first Asian American, the first Japanese American, and the first Hawaiian in space as an astronaut on the space shuttle Discovery. But for McClelland, his memory of Onizuka included the amazing story of possible alien beings and the strange film he'd witnessed, ushering in yet another controversial tale in the annals of UFO lore. An Army Reserve UH-1 helicopter cut through the night sky on October 18, 1973. The four-man crew, Captain Lawrence Coyne, Lieutenant Arrigo Jesse, Sergeant John Healy, and Robert Janicek, had traveled from Cleveland to Columbus earlier that evening for a regular standard medical examination. Following that, they would board their vehicle at 10.30 p.m. and leave for their return journey back to Cleveland. It was while they were over Mansfield that the night took a strange turn. They were flying at 2,500 feet, the mixture of woods, hills, and farmland below them. It was Healy who first spotted the strange red light to their left. It was at some distance, but it looked too bright to be a standard aircraft light. He would keep the sighting to himself, but keep his eye on it. Several moments later, Janicek noticed the red light also. When it began to close in on their craft, he informed Captain Coyne. Believing themselves to be on a collision course with this object, Coyne thrust the helicopter down, descending around 500 feet. As he did so, he would request information from the control tower in Mansfield. A few seconds after initial radio contact with the tower, their communications began to be interrupted. The red object was still heading in their direction. I looked out the window and observed this light moving at a very excessive speed, in excess of 600 knots. Coming at the helicopter, it looked like a locked-on missile. The men prepared for impact. Just as the object was about to crash into the helicopter, it came to a complete stop directly in front and slightly above them. The thing that makes this particular evening a unique experience was that it was almost a mid collision with an object that we you know as a UFO. We did not know it was such until it was on top of the helicopter, and that took just a matter of minutes. The metallic, cigar-shaped object hung in the air, filling the entire windshield. The crew would estimate the object to be around 60 feet in length and around 20 feet high. All four men looked on in awe of this huge, otherworldly craft. Suddenly, a green light swung from underneath and hit the windshield of the helicopter. According to Coyne, the whole cabin turned green as the light illuminated everything in a bright green wash. After a few seconds, the light went out and the object moved up and to the west at great speed. Coyne had the helicopter's height locked throughout the incident at about 1,700 feet, realized they were suddenly at a height of 3,500 feet. They had climbed almost 2,000 feet in a matter of seconds and never even knew it. Suddenly, a bump nudged the helicopter, and instinctively, Coyne climbed slightly, the vehicle now back in his control. 
The crew, still shaken, continued on to Cleveland, where they would make an official report of the incident. However, unlike many encounters involving aircraft pilots, military, or commercial, Coyne would give his report to the media upon landing. The object that I viewed that particular evening uh, had a high degree of technology. It was composed of a structure and a design that we do not have. The object can move through the atmosphere without causing any turbulence. It can move at high speeds below 10,000 feet. There are no vertical or horizontal stabilizers, no landing gear, no source of propulsion reflected on the craft. Looks like it, it, it could go to fly in space. A local Cleveland reporter ran the story the following day. Shortly after, Coyne appeared on the Dick Cavett Show and told of the encounter to a national audience. It's because of his actions that the account is largely seen as credible. It also gave the military no chance to cover up or ridicule the incident. And even if they had tried, several people below also witnessed the bizarre events unfold. There were several witnesses on the ground who would corroborate the pilot's accounts. One of them was Jim Carver and his family, who were driving to the rural home just outside of Mansfield. Along with Jim were his three siblings and his mother, Emma. It was shortly after 11 p.m. when they noticed a strange red light in the sky above them. It appeared to be getting closer. Emma turned the car onto Route 430. As she did so, both she and her four children could now see two lights above. One was red, the other green. As each of them watched the lights in fascination, they noticed the sound of an approaching helicopter. Emma pulled the car to the side of the road, and she and her children stepped out to watch the events above. They could see the huge cigar-shaped object hovering over the helicopter. Suddenly, they witnessed the bright green light shoot from the underside and bathe not only the entire cockpit in fluorescent green, but everything in sight. As the crew reported, after a few seconds, the light went out and the object moved away casting a brief flash of bright white light as it did. Incidentally, there was a spike in UFO sightings throughout the U.S. in October of 1973. In 1988, almost 15 years later, a new witness came forward with more information. Jeanne Elias, from the southeast Mansfield area, recalled laying in bed watching the 11 p.m. news when the sound of an extremely low-flying helicopter made her stop watching the TV. She was used to low-flying aircraft, as their house was only six miles from the Mansfield Airport runway. However, this aircraft sounded lower than normal, and she feared an imminent crash. As she panicked, she hid her head under the pillow on her bed. She could hear her teenage son, John, calling to her from his room next door. The loud rumbling sound had awoken him, and a bright green light filled his entire room from outside. Following an appeal in the Mansfield News Journal in 2015 for witnesses to the Mansfield incident, many people did come forward with new information. One was Brian Stevens, who at the time of the incident was 13 years old. He would recall seeing a red-orange ball that he couldn't take his eyes off of as he walked along Ohio 39. Another new witness, Glenn Stout, worked at Mansfield Tire. He and several co-workers were on a break at the back dock 
when a crazy-looking light sped towards a helicopter, nearly crashing. One particularly bizarre detail offered by Stout was his home electric bill for the month following the incident was only $4. He wondered if this surprisingly low bill had a connection to the UFO overhead that evening. Bring on all the UFO encounters here in New York City, please. My electric bill's insane. Judith Hamm was yet another person who witnessed the bizarre events in 1973. She claimed to have almost screamed out loud as she witnessed what she thought was two planes about to crash. Ham believed it was a military plane until reading stories of the encounter afterward. But let's return to where this all began. With Captain Coyne and the rest of the helicopter crew. Just what was it that was seen that evening in the skies over Mansfield, Ohio, may never be known. While it isn't beyond the realm of possibility that the military has more information about the case, the fact that Coyne bypassed potential censor-heavy channels by speaking directly with the media suggests the incident is mostly intact. Whether or not there was some clandestine military involvement somewhere in the timeline of the episode is open to debate. And just like many other UFO cases, it also remains unexplained. I would like to stress one important fact, and that is there is approximately 20 years of Army aviation experience between the four men on board the helicopter that night. We have been trained to follow procedures and regulations in reporting incidents, regardless of how they're accepted. And we tried to follow those procedures. And we reported the incident as it occurred and have avoided any speculation on the subject. It was on the morning of January 18, 1978, when New Jersey State Police requested entry onto McGuire Air Force Base. Along with the adjacent Fort Dix base, UFOs had been reported earlier in the evening. But what the police said they were looking for was far stranger than just lights in the sky. When asked just exactly why the state troopers needed access to the base, they explained that an MP at Fort Dix had seen a low-flying object that had passed over his car. As he looked back to the road below, he hit the brakes in a panic. Standing in front of his vehicle in the headlights was a small being with a large head, black eyes, and a very slender body. The MP panicked getting out of the car and pulling his 45 automatic. He demanded that the being lay on the ground, and when it didn't comply, he began to shoot. Wounded, the being fled the scene, supposedly hopping the fence between the bases. It then ran down a deserted airfield runway at McGuire, and eventually fell to the ground, dying. The guard on duty at this point, one Sergeant Jeff Morse, allowed the police onto the runway to search for the being. There, they found the body crouched in a fetal position, not breathing. It was indeed dead. Shocked, but keeping with protocol, they began to rope off the area. Suddenly, a group of military officers in blue berets arrived, distancing Morse from the area. Morse watched on from afar as this new group, clad in blue berets, whom he'd never seen before, seemed to take charge of the situation. 
UFO researcher Leonard Stringfield once interviewed Morse about the being itself. Stringfield stated the following about how Morse described it. Quote, Never close enough to observe details such as facial features or its hands and feet, he did recall that under the glare of truck headlights, the skin of the unclad hairless body was wet, shiny, and snake-like. The entity was about four feet in height, with a large head, slender torso, thin arms and legs, and overall a grayish-brown coloration." End quote. Stringfield also inquired about the retrieval operation itself as these Blue Beret officers worked their secretive magic. Stringfield stated that, quote, While on patrol, Morse watched the Blue Beret specialists spray the corpse from a portable tank and cover it with a white sheet. Before the body was carefully placed onto a platform and a wooden frame built around it. This was finally placed into a large square silver metal container, about 10 by 10 feet, with indistinguishable blue markings, end quote. After this, a C-141 cargo aircraft landed on the site. The beam was loaded on board, and it has been suspected that it took off towards Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, supposedly the same base the 1947 Roswell crash bodies were shipped off to as well. Morse and the police officer were separated, and both were told that if they ever spoke of what they'd seen that day, they would immediately be stripped of their duties in their respective jobs. It was two days later when Morse and a few other witnesses were shipped off to Wright-Patterson and received intense interrogations. In statements by Morse many years later, he said, quote, They told me about my duty to keep my mouth shut. I signed a form and it's supposed to bind me for life. Morse was brought back to McGuire Air Force Base, debriefed by his superiors, and the incident was never spoken of again. It didn't take long for Morse to start asking around about just exactly what he'd seen that night by other witnesses. When word of this got out to his superiors, many of the witnesses were shipped overseas, including Morse who soon found himself stationed at Okinawa on desk duty. To this day, he admits that he's been constantly threatened not to speak of the event and that the military has gone to great lengths to keep him quiet, including personality and professional attacks, making it difficult for Morse to find employment in law enforcement. If this wasn't extraordinary or incredible enough, Another key witness did come forward to corroborate this event. Major George Filer, now retired, was stationed at McGuire at the same time as an intelligence officer. While not being present at the actual incident, he heard firsthand about it the following morning. In an interview with ABC News, Filer stated that, quote, Our security police went out there and found him, the alien, at the end of the runway, dead. They asked me to brief the general staff. While this briefing was later cancelled, Filer remained convinced that this event was truly bizarre, and the joint bases were doing everything in their power to contain it and keep everyone silent. While he couldn't prove that this alien being was of extraterrestrial origin, word around the base continued to spread, and all were convinced that this was a genuine UFO landing and the subsequent death of its extraterrestrial occupant. So, did a panicked, trigger-happy MP actually shoot and kill an alien that night? The truth may never be known, 
The lid on this and so many other apparent incidents of this ilk have been so tightly wound shut that those involved fear the worst for their jobs or perhaps even their lives. And I have to admit, this one is pretty hard to swallow. While we may have statements, we have absolutely no evidence or documents to back any of this up. That's ufology at its best and worst. But if this case of an alien termination is true, then we have more to fear than just military threats. We have an alien race expecting one of their own to eventually come home. They just probably weren't expecting it to be in a body bag. One of the most baffling UFO cases ever reported took place in Minnesota in the early morning of August 27, 1979. Deputy Sheriff Val Johnson of the Marshall County Sheriff's Department was on patrol that morning when he noticed an extremely bright light coming through the side window of his patrol car. He reported that the light was much stronger than any light or motor vehicle on the road could produce. His first thought was that it could potentially be an airplane smuggling in drugs from Canada. He surmised the plane may have crashed or was about to crash. He turned on the road to move in close and head towards the light to investigate. The last thing he remembered was that the light came barreling towards him and reached the patrol car so fast that it seemed like it happened in a mere instant. He heard glass breaking and then he went unconscious. From the analysis of the accident, it was estimated that Deputy Johnson was unconscious for about 39 minutes. When he awoke, he radioed headquarters for help in a weak voice, stating that something had hit his patrol car, but he did not know what. When a second deputy arrived on the scene, he immediately called the ambulance and Deputy Johnson was taken to the nearby Warren Hospital. Deputy Johnson's eyes were reported to be red and puffy. The medical doctor who examined the deputy said the injuries to his eyes looked like they had been inflicted by a welder's torch. He also said Deputy Johnson was in a state of shock. The Marshall County Sheriff's Department investigated the Val Johnson UFO incident extensively, but experts were also brought in because the physical evidence left behind was so baffling. The windshield of the patrol car was badly cracked from top to bottom. However, the patterns in which it was broken defied normal analysis. It did not seem to be the result of an outside force or inside force. It almost seemed as if there were both inside and outside forces working simultaneously to create a fractured pattern that the investigators had never seen before or could explain with ordinary techniques. They concluded that there seemed to be four separate areas of impact, but could not even hazard a guess as to what caused the pattern they saw. On the left side of the front hood of the patrol car, there was a strange one and a half inch circular dent. The headlights were broken on the side of both the inside and the outside of the patrol car. However, the headlights on the other side of the patrol car were left untouched. The main antenna was inexplicably bent at a 60 degree angle, starting at 6 inches from the base of the antenna. 
The antenna in the truck was also damaged. One of the strangest things the investigators found was that the patrol car clock was behind 14 minutes, and Deputy Johnson's wristwatch was also behind the exact same amount of time. Before the incident, both the patrol car clock and Deputy Johnson's wristwatch had been synchronized with the clock at headquarters. No logical explanation has ever been given for why the patrol car clock and the wristwatch were both affected in the exact same way. While there were many experts involved in analyzing the damaged patrol car and other physical evidence, one is particularly noteworthy. This was J. Allen Hynek, the consultant for the U.S. Air Force's UFO project, Blue Book. As Dr. Hynek and his team investigated the Val Johnson UFO incident, he concluded that it was not a hoax. Further, nothing in Deputy Johnson's statement seemed untruthful. Dr. Hynek proposed that the cracked windshield had been damaged by rocks being carried in a wake of a very large object, moving at extraordinary speeds. Further, he proposed that the antenna had been bent for the sheer velocity of the air that rushed past the patrol car that night. The patrol car is now on permanent display at the Marshall County Historical Society Museum. It is always one of the top attractions during the annual Minnesota County Fair. When the incident occurred in 1979, there were only about 60,000 miles on the patrol car, so the Marshall County Sheriff officials wanted the car repaired and put back into commission. However, Sheriff Dennis Breck convinced them to decommission the car and put it on public display. The patrol car has achieved legendary status among those who believe in paranormal phenomena and UFOs. In fact, the Val Johnson incident is so famous, there have been two documentary-style television programs devoted to it. Val Johnson received much attention for the incident. So much, in fact, that he told the press that the incident had caused a great deal of emotional strain on himself and his family. While he did appear on several interviews with local news and even Good Morning America, he began to withdraw from other press appearances. No matter what, this UFO encounter will live in the history books as one of the most fascinating UFO cases of all time. Still to this day, the incident serves as one of the very best cases where physical evidence was left behind by a UFO. Every year since the incident, Warren, Minnesota has received a great many visitors wishing to see for themselves the patrol car with its peculiar damage and the area where the incident occurred. The light was coming at me. It was extremely bright. The inside of the car lit up. I can remember that. And uh, it was a very dazzling, brilliant appearance. Something did strike my vehicle. Uh, something didn't want me there, apparently, or it was, you know, I, I can't put a judgment on it. The Somewhere in the Skies podcast is free to listen to every week. But if you would like to help support the show, we have a very active Patreon page where you give what you think the show is worth. In return, 
you'll get early access to the main show, bonus episodes, and priority to ask our guests your listener questions. Your support truly makes the show continue and grow. So, to learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. July 1st, 1965. Valençon, France. It was approximately 6 in the morning when Maurice Moss was getting ready for work on his farm. Suddenly... He heard a strange noise coming from his lavender field. Moss assumed it was one of the military helicopters that would occasionally land on his property. Worried that the helicopter might be crushing his lavender, he made his way over to the field and intended to tell the pilot to park someplace else. But rather than a helicopter, Moss stumbled upon an egg-shaped vehicle about the size of an automobile. It stood on six thin legs, sitting about 200 feet away from him. He noticed two small boys, about four feet tall, standing near the craft, apparently observing the lavender. As Moss began to walk closer to confront these boys, he realized they weren't boys at all. They weren't even human. Dressed in green one-piece suits, these creatures had abnormally large and bald heads, no lips, pointed chins, pale skin, and small hands. One of the creatures suddenly turned around and pointed a small tube at Moss, blasting him with a light that paralyzed him. These creatures stared at Moss for about a minute, communicating with one another by low, guttural grunts. A door then slid open across the craft, and the two mysterious creatures disappeared into it. After the door closed, the craft took off into the sky and out of Moss's sight. Moss was paralyzed for about 15 minutes before he could even begin to move. After checking to inspect the marks the craft's legs had made on his lavender, he rushed to town and told a cafe owner what had happened. It wasn't long before the story hit the media 
and authorities and Moss's farm soon became infested with tourists. UFO investigators took samples of the lavender and soil allegedly touched by the craft, and Moss freely talked to them about his experience. Investigators found that the ground where the craft had landed was soaked with moisture, although no rain had fallen. Geometrically spaced indentations covered the area, and the plants were affected by the proximity of the phenomenon, appearing to decay in direct proportion to their distance from the central column of the craft. The calcium content of the soil at the landing site was found to be much higher than in samples taken from other areas in the field. The case caught the attention of noted UFO researcher and astronomer, Dr. Jacques Vallée. And all of a sudden he was paralyzed. He saw two small creatures. They were not quite the ones that you have here. They, they looked. They looked, uh, they were very small, but they had normal heads and they, were, they had normal human features. Uh -huh. But he was paralyzed and they started speaking to each other in some strange language, went back into the object, the object took off. The interesting thing is that there were traces left. Those traces were studied by various agencies of the French government. There was no question he was not lying. The, the traces could not be duplicated. Um, the, and he was paralyzed for 20 minutes after the object left, which is, is very interesting from the point of view of the, the effect of the kind of radiation that that object may have been creating. And this is a very common report on the part of witnesses of they, this yeah. feeling of paralysis. Valet returned to the scene of the incident in 1979 and, meeting with Maurice Moss and two of his close friends, made a number of interesting observations. Valet noted that Moss was reluctant to give all the details of his experience to investigators, as well as to his own family at the time, including the fact that he believed that some type of silent communication took place between himself and these creatures. From the beginning, he wanted to minimize the impact of the experience, not wanting publicity, amongst other reasons. Like many experiencers of this phenomenon, he had changed in many ways as a result of the experience, including the belief that some form of contact, once established, continued in subtle forms. Valet concluded that, quote, Throughout this discussion with Mr. Moss, I had the feeling that I was in the presence of a very intelligent man, capable of deep emotions and rational thought. He is also quite humble. He has declined to appear on a television documentary with a nationally known journalist. I had brought with me a photograph of similar traces left after another case. Mr. Moss looked at me with a mixture of amazement and relief that someone else was aware of these particular marks. He told us that he sometimes found them in his field. That's how he knows that they have come back. He always erases the traces immediately. Reflecting back on this experience, Moss said that he wasn't afraid at all during the encounter and believed that the creatures had no desire to hurt him. Moss did, however, refuse to elaborate on the psychological and physical effects he felt afterward. He did admit to feeling extremely sleepy during the first few weeks, sometimes sleeping up to 12 hours a day. In particular, there was one big detail of the encounter that he refused to discuss with anybody. 
He was quoted as saying, nobody will make me tell it. His wife later said in an interview that he constantly thought about the creatures and, quote, considered his encounter with them a spiritual experience. Whatever else he saw or heard or experienced, Moss would take to the grave with him, dying on May 14th, 2004. And with that, we will never truly know the one detail of the encounter he refused to share with the public. And this enduring mystery of the encounter in the lavender field may forever remain unexplained. On the evening of September 4th, 1964, 28-year-old Donald Shrum, along with two friends, Vincent Alvarez and Tim Trueblood, were hunting in the Tahoe National Forest near Cisco Grove, California. All had considerable experience bow hunting, and all were overall general outdoorsmen. On this particular night, after having established a camp, they found themselves hunting for deer. Perhaps due to their comfort in the outdoor environment, with the night fast approaching no less, all agreed that they would push deep into the woods in pursuit of their targets, and if they had to, spend the night in the woods and rendezvous back in the camp in the morning. Before long, all three of them found themselves separated from one another, looking for their potential targets. With daylight losing the battle against the night, Shrum would make the decision to find somewhere to bed down for the night. Or, more accurately, bed up. Shrum had with him a military-style belt which allowed for him to secure himself in a tree. Given the number of wild animals who might wish to turn the tables on the hunter, Shrum believed this was a preferable option to camping on the ground, alone and ultimately defenseless. Shortly after securing himself for the night, a strange light appeared in the distance. Of more concern to Shrum was a zigzagging pattern around the trees at low altitude, which headed towards him. Thinking his two friends had arranged a search for him in the form of a helicopter, he jumped from the tree and quickly released three of his flares to give away his destination. As he was waving his arms and yelling for attention, he began to realize what was heading his way wasn't a rescue helicopter after all. The glowing object finally stopped around 50 yards from his position. It was spherical, but unlike anything he'd ever seen before. He quickly made his way back up the tree, making sure his bow was ready. Fear was now rising at a seemingly unstoppable rate within him. That fear would rise even more when three small humanoid creatures emerged from the craft and began making their way straight towards him. As they came closer, he could see that while two of them were most definitely humanoid, the third was more robot-like. The two humanoids began to shake the tree, obviously in an effort to force him from it. He would cling on with all his strength. However, when a white vapor shot out from the robotic creature's mouth, he later realized he was knocked unconscious. Only momentarily, however. 
Aside from an intense feeling of nausea, he was unharmed. He began lighting the matches he used for his flares, dropping them towards the menacing trio in an effort to force them away. Although they would back away for a short while, they soon continued their assault. By this time, Shrum had managed to load an arrow into his bow and let it fly. It soared into the robot's direction. Seconds later, a shower of sparks flew into the air, suggesting a direct hit. As quickly as he could, he fired two more arrows in the general vicinity of the creature's location, causing all of them to back away. However, before he could take advantage of the situation, a second robot appeared. And once again, a white vapor hit Shrum and caused him to lose consciousness again. When he awoke this final time, he was alone. There was no sign of the ship having returned, but all the creatures, including the robots, were gone. He dropped himself from the tree, dazed, tired, but largely unhurt. He would set out for the prearranged meeting place of the campsite from the previous afternoon. Once there, he would discover both of his friends waiting for him as planned. Incidentally, all three of the men would return to the destination later that day after hearing Shrum's incredible story. They did find several of the arrows he had fired, as well as several pieces of charred clothing. His two friends would believe his claims, though, in part due to Alvarez's own sighting of the glowing craft leaving the scene. However, when Shrum's mother-in-law, upon hearing of the encounter, told an astronomer friend from the local college, things began to take a gritty turn. The astronomer would immediately contact the nearby McClelland Air Force Base. He would inform them of the account and the location of the witness. Even more bizarre, instead of visiting him at his home to listen to his version of events, even though he had not yet made any sort of report, they would arrange to meet in an empty house at an off-base housing development. Shrum would agree to the meeting. The two officers present would listen to his account and then confiscate several of the arrows. Later claims suggested that these had shavings of the robot on them. Then the officers insisted that what he had just described to them hadn't happened or not in the way he remembered. Furthermore, they would present several alternative scenarios, as if giving him the opportunity to pick one for himself. He would eventually agree that he wasn't certain of what he'd seen, if for no other reason than to keep his employers from facing similar questions. Shrum has stuck to the same story and version of events for over half a century. I'm going to leave you with an audio clip of an interview conducted by UFO researcher and author Ruben Uriarte. For a complete and comprehensive look at this case, be sure to purchase the book Aliens in the Forest, the Cisco Grove UFO Incident, co-written by Uriarte and Notorious. In this exclusive interview, you'll hear Shrum recount that harrowing day in his own words. 
and I heard some thrashing through the brush in probably five, ten minutes. These two humanoids come out of the brush and they kind of broke some of the brush off and, and uh, was looking at it. And then they came straight underneath the tree and looked up at me. And I, I knew right then I was fingered. <laughs> they found you. Yeah, they found me. Can you describe them for us? Tell us briefly what they Yeah, were. they were looked like uh, four to five feet. Of course, I'm looking down at them, so they, they'd be shorter than they probably are. And uh, they had a silvery, like a one-piece uh, suit on, and it seemed like it had the, the joints puffy joints you know on the shoulders and the, and the elbows and and the legs i didn't see that clear were you able to see their faces no uh, it was just a kind of a dark shadow i could see the the two uh like eyes that were looked like welding goggles to me they're the same as welding goggles they're about two inches in diameter it reminded me just like i said like a welding goggles and then the rest of the face was kind of a uh, blur i couldn't see looking down at them then I saw two flashing red-orange eyes just picking its way down the ridge, just between the rocks and, and around them and everything, and come down and was on the, this big boulder, this big flat rock. And then uh, he kind of looked up at me, and he moved his hand through the fire cinders and kind of scattered them. Then he come down uh, up on the rock he was about seven feet from me and uh, then he he touched his mouth and uh, kind of a steam vapor come out of his mouth and it lit up his face so I could see some detail and then uh, I, I blacked out when that steam hit me it kind of took the air from me and I'd gasp for air and then black out and I fell over my bow and that's the only thing that kept me in the tree and then uh so I figured they were out to get me then. The eyes of this other uh, creature, like uh, the robot, what, what did that look like to you? It had uh, kind of like fire. It's kind of a orangish, reddish orange or yellowish orange. It kind of flickered like fire. And they're about the same diameter, as uh, about two inches in diameter as the humanoids. I had a 60-pound bow, which is a very high velocity. Seeing how the robot is the only thing that was causing me harm, I shot the chest area, and it has the velocity of a rifle at that, at that distance, because I'm only about seven, eight feet from him. And it, when I hit the chest, the sparks would fly, like an arc welder, kind of. And then that, that robot backed up and almost knocked him down. He kind of fell back against the rock. And then I, I ran out of uh, arrows, so I only had three left. And uh, I thought, well, I had, that's when pomade hair <laughs> is just, I mean, the, the cap I had on was just soaked with oil. You're, this is for your hair, pomade. Yeah, from my hair, yeah, 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 pomade. And uh, I always carried uh, all kinds of books of matches with me when I hunted. And so I lit that cap and it just blazed up and I dropped it down the base of the tree. And just in that instant, they, they moved back about 12, 15 feet. And the, the, I, I glanced over at the, the ship that was uh, over the canyon, kind of almost level with me. And it was almost out of sight. It was just like a star. It moved that fast, just in that second. So then I got the idea that they're scared of fire. So I, I burned everything but my t-shirt and my jeans and uh, come to find out later on that, that it was 32 degrees out and I was shaking and 
kind of overexposed for the weather. Well, when I throw, threw my, after my hat, I threw my canteen down and uh, they, they'd picked it up and looked at it and, and threw it back down. When I run out of stuff to burn, I headed for the top of the tree and then, then I'd, I'd uh, I, it was pretty sparse tree I could see down to the ground and I broke off the top and threw it down and, and anytime I throw down or, or shake the tree these humanoids would back up when I was up in the top of that tree I uh, thought about just jumping off and jumping down the canyon and just killing myself but the only thing that kept me going is I had a, the little girl my wife and that kept me fighting Gary Irwin was a Nike missile technician at Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. On February 28, 1959, he was driving back from Nampa, Idaho, where he'd been on leave. At Cedar City, Utah, he turned southeast onto Route 14. About six miles from the turnoff, he spotted a glowing object that seemed to come to Earth in a field just off the road. Thinking he had seen an airplane crash, or at least a forced landing, he stopped to see if he could give assistance. He wrote a note and placed it on the steering wheel of his car. It read, quote, Have gone to investigate possible plane crash. Please call law enforcement officers, end quote. Then he wrote, Stop, in large letters, on the side of his car. About 30 minutes later, a fish and game inspector happened to be driving past and stopped at Irwin's car. He saw the note and took it to the Cedar City Sheriff's Office, where Sheriff Otto Fife gathered a party of volunteers and returned to the site. When they searched, they found no trace of a plane crash, but they found Private Gary Irwin unconscious in a field by the side of the road. Ninety minutes had passed since he had first seen the glowing object. Irwin was taken to the hospital in Cedar City, where Dr. Broadbent could find nothing physically wrong with him. Irwin was merely asleep and could not be awakened. Dr. Broadbent could find no explanation for this, so his diagnosis was hysteria. When Private Irwin eventually awoke, he felt perfectly well, but he was mystified by the glowing object he had seen. He was also confused by the fact that his jacket was missing. The sheriff's search party stated that he was not wearing it when they found him. Irwin was flown back to Fort Bliss and placed under observation at William Beaumont Army Hospital for several days, after which he was released as fit to return to duty. The episode was not over yet, though. Some days later, Irwin fainted on base, and a few days after that, he fainted while in the city of El Paso. He was taken to Southwest General Hospital, where he was found once again to be asleep and unwakeable. About 24 hours later, he awoke, asking, quote, Were there any survivors? He behaved as if he had lost all memory of the period between seeing the object on February 28th in Utah and waking up on March 16th in El Paso. Once again, he was taken to William Beaumont Army Hospital, where he was placed under observation by psychiatrists. After one month, extensive testing could find nothing wrong with him, so he was released on April 17th. 
The next day, Irwin was seized by a powerful impulse that made him take a bus from El Paso to Cedar City, arriving on April 19th. He then walked back to the field in which the sheriff's party had found him. He found his jacket on a bush. There was a pencil stuck in one of its buttonholes with a piece of paper wound tightly around it. Irwin burned the paper and then seemed to come out of some kind of trance. He could not recall the path back to the road or why he'd come there. He made his way back to Cedar City and turned himself in to Sheriff Otto Fife, who told Irwin about his first encounter on the 28th of February. Once again, Irwin returned to Fort Bliss and was given psychological examinations. On July 10th, he again entered William Beaumont Army Hospital. He was discharged again, but on August 1st, he failed to report for duty, and one month later, he was listed as a deserter. After this, Private Gary Irwin disappeared from the public view, and his current, if he still is alive, whereabouts are unknown. December 14, 1994 Trumbull County, Ohio. Just after midnight, a series of calls was received by 911 operators. These reports all involved one thing, low-flying UFOs. The majority of these calls were heard by dispatcher Roy Ann Rudolph. Everything from somebody who was casually stating they saw something in the air to somebody who was hysterical and, and thought that this was Armageddon. Okay, was it just like moving at a slow rate of speed? It wasn't slowly, it was fastly, but it was coming down. We just kind of took it for, okay, this is people being hysterical over a weather balloon, or this is people being hysterical over a plane or a helicopter. I wonder, did you have anyone call you about a, a strange plane or airplane or something in the air? Just, Where? It was coming down Samson Drive. I don't know what it was. It was a flying saucer. What did it look like, ma'am? It was like a, uh, almost like an iridescent color. It was like a bluish purple. But because of the extraordinary number of calls, Rudolph decided to notify the police of Liberty Township. The first police unit contacted thought that the reports were probably nothing to worry about and that a plane was probably flying low. Sergeant Toby Maloro was the first officer on the scene. It took a few minutes. We kind of laughed about it. I believed that I was going to see, uh, if anything, a plane was landing or a plane was low. That's what I assumed I was going to see. And as he proceeded down Samson Drive to check out the lights, he was informed by a man on the street that the lights were moving south. As Maloro continued southerly, his cruiser went dead. As he attempted to restart his vehicle, it was engulfed by a bright white light from above. Startled and frightened, he exited his vehicle and stood outside looking up at this giant object, circular in shape and intensely bright in the center. After about 30 seconds, the giant object started to move away. And the thing that was very strange was there was no sound. After the object moved out of sight, his vehicle began to function normally again. Trying to understand what he'd just seen, he took off in pursuit of the UFO. 
Melora was unable to keep pace with this object. He called dispatch informing them what he'd seen and gave the object's direction of flight. Soon the information spread to active law enforcement units all across the area, and reports of the object's direction were used to triangulate the object. I could see a red glow up in the sky. It was huge. That thing wasn't making no noise. This isn't funny anymore because it's getting to the point where um, I don't know whether to believe him or not. Well, what was, what was, was it moving or was it just... Yeah, it was glowing. It was moving. You could, you could see it like up in the air, glowing and getting further away from me. People are serious. They're very upset. Whatever it was, lit up, I mean, literally, if you were underneath it, you could see it would be like daylight, but red light. Dispatcher Rudolph later stated that at least 14 to 15 officers had seen the UFO. The reports of the object and its movements were openly discussed among the officers on the police radio. Police dispatch, with reports of the UFO spreading to adjacent communities, called the local airport FAA control tower and asked if they had anything unusual on the radar. We have a report of some flying object in our jurisdiction. Do you know of anything that should be in our airspace this time, close to the ground? Uh, right this now, is not a prank phone call, I swear. You can call me I, back uh, to verify. Look at the radar uh, scope, and uh, it goes 60 miles diameter of Youngstown, and there is nothing out there. Lieutenant James Baker of the Brookfield Township Police Department was one of the officers monitoring the fantastic calls, and he decided to have a look for himself. He climbed up into an abandoned radar tower in the area to get a better look at this object. As he reached the top of the tower, he was shocked at what he saw. Not one, but three UFOs. All three objects were in a triangular pattern, with the middle object slightly higher than the two on the side. Also, Baker stated that the object changed colors in unison, red, yellow, blue, and green. He reported his observations to the other patrolmen on duty. I got them right here. I'm looking at them. What the hell is it? They're sitting stationary. I got three of them. What do they look like? I've got four discernible colors. I got red, yellow, green, and blue. And the one just was like flashing. So if they're those planets those guys were talking about, then they're uh, planets with Christmas lights on. This is weird. Oh my God, I hope that's a plane. Please be a plane. Oh, please. Astronomers have tried to explain away the sightings as simple stars that appeared to be low in the sky and appeared to be changing colors. Clearly, the police officer who saw the very intense bright light very likely saw a fireball. A fireball is a very, very bright meteor that can be many times brighter than the full moon. I think the car stalling was just a coincidence, had nothing to do with this whatsoever. It, it, obviously, it had to be involved in my cruiser shutting down. There was no problem with my car because it started back up. I was told that it may have been the planet Mercury. It was not the planet Mercury. Some have theorized that the object seen by the policemen of Trumbull County was a top-secret craft from the Youngstown Air Reserve Base. However, Captain John Keetak from the base stated that there were no planes or experimental craft flying that night. I can't, you know, speak for other people who say they may or may not have seen something. What I can talk from with authority is what happened here at the base and what our involvement was, and there was apparently none. 
The policemen of Ohio have spoken often about what they saw on December 14, 1994. Police cars that inexplicably stalled, light beams engulfing the vehicles. One or more structured craft of a nature never seen before or since. The 1994 sightings of Trumbull County have never been adequately explained. And, as usual, leave us with more questions than answers. I'm not saying what I saw was was a, a spaceship from outer space, okay? Uh, what I'm saying is I saw an object that was not normal for this area. It gave off an intense light. It shut my cruiser off, including my radio. I lost contact with the 911 center. And it didn't make any noise. It's something that I've never seen before. I've never encountered before. And um, I haven't encountered it since. I do believe that they saw something. I don't believe that it was a star. There was something there. What I walked away from that night was a feeling that this was a lot bigger than just a couple people saying they saw a light in the sky. And it made us think maybe a small place like Trumbull County could have something big happen occasionally. Friday, March 4th, 1988. All four members of the Baker family were driving home following their usual Friday night meal. It was a little after 8.30 p.m. Henry, the father, was driving, and the two children were in the back seat. The heavily pregnant Sheila, the mother, looked out the passenger window at the frozen Lake Erie. The ice almost shined in the moonlight. Then she saw something strangely lit, looking as if it was rocking on the surface of the lake. She nudged her husband, who took his attention away from the road. He could see it also. At Sheila's insistence, he would turn the car's direction towards the waterfront. Once there, they instructed their sons to remain in the vehicle. They stepped out into the cold night and began to cautiously make their way to the water's edge. The lights were still there. What Sheila first noticed, though, were sounds that appeared to be the ice of the frozen lake cracking. She would liken them to claps of thunder. As they got as near as they could without stepping on the ice, they could clearly make out a football-shaped object with bright white lights at either end. The object itself appeared to be of a gunmetal gray color and was hovering overhead as opposed to being on the surface. Despite the obvious movement, the strange craft made no noise whatsoever. All Sheila could hear were the sounds of cracking ice. Suddenly, as if it had become aware of their presence, the object swung towards them, heading in their direction. Panicked and frightened, the couple turned and ran back to their car. Henry would drive the remainder of the journey completely uneasy. Once the Bakers arrived at their home and settled their children to bed, Sheila would contact the police to report the sighting. The police would tell her that she would have to make the report to the Coast Guard. She did, and despite their initial refusal to deal with the case, they eventually agreed to pick them up and take them back to the waterfront. Meanwhile, the Bakers could clearly see the object hovering over the lake from the window of their house. As they watched, six independent triangular objects suddenly emerged from the larger craft. They would move around the main object in a darting motion before halting to a complete stop. 
These triangular objects would then move in the direction of the Perry nuclear power plant nearby. The Bakers would ask their neighbor to watch their children, and when the Coast Guard arrived, they would accompany them back to the lake. According to the officers, James Power and John Knob, several other reports, including from their own employees, had come in regarding the object. As the Coast Guard's vehicle pulled up at the waterfront, the smaller triangular objects were once again circling the main craft. As soon as the Coast Guards opened their car doors, the sound of rumbling ice met everyone's ears. This noise was constant, as if the object's purpose was to crack the ice and gain access to the water below. The Coast Guard's report would state that the ice was crackling and moving. Whenever the object came closer to the surface, the cracking sounds became more intense. The Coast Guards would radio back to their control base, stating that the, quote, objects appeared to be landing on the lake. The Coast Guards would continue to advise the control room of the situation. As the triangular craft became more active once more, they would report that the other objects were moving all around, and they were going at high rates of speed. As Sheila and Henry, along with the two Coast Guards, continued to watch the fascinating display, they noticed one of the triangles suddenly turn in their direction. It was heading straight for the Coast Guard's vehicle. Right before what seemed to be an inevitable impact, the object veered upwards in a blur of light. It then returned to the main large craft, as did all the other smaller triangular objects. All the while, the sound of ice cracking continued. It seemed that the previously bright white lights of the craft were now beginning to flash and glow in a display of red, blue, orange, and green. The craft itself appeared to be descending. The lights went out for a second and then returned. And then, without warning, the lights and the rumbling noise were gone completely. The witnesses were not clear if the craft had sped away or if the lights had simply gone out. Perhaps it was still hovering over the ice. Only now they couldn't see it. Sheila, though, would voice her suspicion, for reasons she doesn't know, that this object plunged directly below the ice and into the frozen waters. Although several of the small triangular objects were seen flying directly overhead a little later that evening, this large craft didn't reappear. One of the Coast Guards would report that the triangular crafts behaved as though they were scouting the area. None of the Coast Guards could identify any of the objects they had witnessed. And the Lake Erie Close Encounter remains to this day unexplained.
Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network.